Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you have your Bibles, let's open up this 1 John chapter 4. I will pray as you turn. Like I said, we're going to do really an overview this morning of not everything, but the highlights of what the confession has to say about covenants and then specifically how the moral law of God fits into God's covenants. So, Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. We want wisdom. We need wisdom. Lord Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 speaks of praying that uh, you would give a spirit of wisdom and revelation in understanding more about Christ to people that are already Christians. And so uh, that's what I'm asking for this morning for myself and for everybody listening to this, that you would fill us full of the Holy Spirit in a fresh way to see something of the glory of Christ revealed in the Bible, in your covenants, in your law. Uh, take old truths that we already know and make them new, make them come alive, quicken us, Father, and, and, and give us new insight, maybe into things we've never understood. Again, not just so that we can be arrogant, academic eggheads, uh, but Lord, that we would uh, be passionate about you, passionate about your glory, changed and motivated uh, to go live and teach and serve all for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, right on time. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. There is a lot of confusion in the church in whatever probably denomination you grew up in. And exactly how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? So in one sense, you could say that's what we're talking about, but we're definitely talking more broadly than that. So there's going to be a lot of points this morning. The first one is this. What is the moral law? When we talk about the moral law of God. What is it? Here's kind of my basic bottom line definition. It is a righteous, it is a righteous revelation of God's character. The moral law of God is a righteous revelation of God's character. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, a verse that we're probably all familiar with. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I mean, it's one of the strongest statements in the whole Bible about the character of God. God is love. Then you think about uh, maybe the best summary of the moral law comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Why did he give two when they only asked for one? I think almost certainly because he knows the sin of the human heart and certainly the Pharisees and the lawyers he was often dealing with to say, well, of course I love God. Look at all this that I do for God. I tithe, I fast, all that. And what Jesus was trying to say is, if you really love God, it always spills over into loving your neighbor, right? And another side note, well, who is my labor, neighbor? It's really anybody. And to be more specific, it's whoever you trip over. It's just whoever you come across in life even a, a beaten Samaritan that you might hate, okay, on the road, or the Samaritan coming and finding you. Um, so, Genesis 1, chapter 26. I'm going to refer to a lot of verses this morning. You don't have to flip to all of them. Um, we were made in God's image. We're supposed Human beings are supposed to be a reflection of all that's good and right and true of God. Now, we, we, we don't have all, share all his attributes. God's eternal. We, we're not eternal in the same way because we did have a beginning. Okay? But there are attributes of God, such as love, that we are supposed to reflect. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, think about it this way. Why is it wrong uh, to murder? Because God loves life. 
God creates life. God's a living being who gives us life, and we should image him in that. Why is it wrong to commit adultery? Because God is a faithful lover, right? God doesn't break his covenant, and so neither should we. That's what the moral law really is. Point two, the moral law is on everybody's heart, starting with Adam. Okay, so let's go to uh, Romans, Romans chapter 1, to see this. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1. And with some of these points, I have more verses, so if you have questions and, and you want to ask me later in class or you want to email me, I can give you more of the verses. But Romans chapter 1, start in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning everybody, all human beings, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So going all the way back to Adam, there's enough that's clear about God just in your experience of revelation to know that God is real, that he exists and that he's powerful, okay? that he's in charge. Flip over to chapter 2, and let's skip down to verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, so in Paul's mind, Gentiles, everybody's not a Jew, they didn't grow up with the Word of God, right? The Jews had the privilege, they grew up with the Word of God. They knew they had special revelation. But Gentiles who only have general revelation, look at what he's going to say about them. Uh, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Most people just know on their heart it's wrong to murder. And even if they're a murderer, they don't want anybody to murder them, right? C.S. Lewis has this, I don't remember what book it's in, maybe it was in Mirror Christianity, where uh, you know, if somebody says something effective, well, I don't believe in moral absolutes or anything like that. He said, what you, and I think he was kind of speaking tongue-in-cheek, but do something to offend them. Slap them across the face. Push them, knock them down. And I'm kind of giving my own interpretation. I don't think that's exactly what he said. Break in front of them in line. And all of a sudden, you will see they believe more. Hey, that wasn't fair. That wasn't right. Right? If, if there are no more absolutes, we can do whatever we want. Everybody deep down believes in it. Okay? Even the Gentiles, the pagans who have no written revelation. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. Everybody, even the psychopath, sociopath, from a Christian to a pagan, there's some kind of inner dialogue going on in your mind. Sometimes you're like, I was sinful, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. You know, or maybe they don't use that language. They might think, well, that's going to give me bad karma. Or I just did a good deed. That's going to give me good karma. But that there is some general sense of right and wrong, which is a reflection of the law of God on human beings' heart. Okay. There is a book called uh, The Marrow of, of Modern Divinity. It's, it's long. It's heavy. Uh, did any of y'all actually read it that were in my seminary class last semester? Okay, it, it's a hard read. But if you just like, you really want to nerd out on Reformed theology and, and covenant theology, go read that one. Okay, here's a quote from the Marrow. Adam heard as much of the law in the garden as Israel did at Sinai, but only in fewer words and without thunder. Now let me try to give you an example of how this plays out. Think about, you know, Genesis chapters 1 through Four. There, there's very few rules that God gives in Genesis chapter 1 through 4. Mainly it's about don't eat from the tree. Okay. But when in chapter 4 there's a murder, God 
rebukes man for murder, although there had never been any written or spoken that we know of word about murder, but he was supposed to intuitively know because the law was written on his heart that murder is sin. Okay. We're made in the image of God. Ever since sin, that image has been shattered, and yet the image is still there. I've used this illustration before, but it's very helpful. Imagine there was a full-length mirror here, and somebody threw a rock and it shattered it. I would still see a reflection of my image, although it would be very broken and convoluted. And that's in a sense. The law of God is still written on our heart, although it's much harder to understand now since sin. So here's the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, Chapter 4, Part 2 says this. He created man, God, God created man having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under possibility of transgressing, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God. So in the very beginning, before there was sin, the moral law of God was written onto the heart of mankind. Okay. Third point, God made a covenant with Adam for salvation based on the moral law. Basically, the deal was, if you obey, you live. That's Genesis chapter 2. If you obey me, you live. If you disobey me, you die. Now, what is a covenant? Biblically, it's a unilateral, serious oath with implications. Unilateral means it's one party. It's not a negotiated agreement. It's imposed. You, you're put into the covenant biblically, whether you want to be put into the covenant or not. Right? Um, you know, there, there's a scene... In my humble opinion, Braveheart, the greatest movie of all time. Okay, there's a scene at the end uh, where he's on trial, and at some point he says to the court, Never in my life did I swear allegiance to a king. And the court responds, It matters not. He is your king. Now, we all, you know, Americans and Aussies, we may want to cheer with the Scottish rebel, right? You know, death to tyrants. Okay, but biblically speaking, that's a great word. Some arrogant atheist might say, never in my life did I swear allegiance to Yahweh. It matters not. He is your king. Right? And, and, this, and this one works. Maybe it doesn't work for Edward the Longshanks in history and in the movie, okay? But it works for Yahweh because it's like, I made you. Right? It's kind of like the parent that says, hey, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Uh, that's not totally true, but there is a sense, hey, I created you. You, you, you have to obey. Um, so it's made typically in blood, not the first covenant, but typically after this, it is made in blood, uh, because to break it leads to bloodshed. There's a penalty. Okay. There's, you know, one of the things that Sinclair Ferguson has taught that's been so helpful to me, there's not so much conditions to a covenant. Sometimes people want to talk about the difference in a conditional covenant, unconditional covenant. That's really not the most helpful language. It's better just to say, all conditions have, I mean, excuse me, all covenants have implications, very strong and serious implications. Because God has done this, then you should do this. Not if you do this, God will do that. Okay. But the first covenant that we're looking at, okay, is sometimes called the covenant of works, is sometimes called the covenant of life. If you want to see where it's called the covenant of life, I think that shows up in uh, Shorter Catechism question and answer 12 okay but a lot of times it's called the covenant of works now why why do sometimes they some people like to refer to it better as the covenant of life and not the covenant of works is this the covenant of works implies that it's it's totally based on merit it, it can imply that i don't think it should but sometimes in our minds it implies that but here's the thing even if adam and eve 
had obeyed and earned, you know, life with God to some degree. Do you realize they didn't start it neutral? They didn't start in a vacuum. Even that was a gracious covenant because they started in paradise, in Eden. They started with the deck stacked in their favor, and they still blew it. Which, this is a total side note, but this might be very important for some of us today. Okay? It's always very sobering for me when I just pause for five seconds and think about the fact that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden only had one enemy. They had Satan. They did not have a sinful culture. They did not have indwelling sin, and they still blew it. We wake up every morning, and even if you're the strongest Christian in the universe, you face three enemies every day. The same devil, who now has thousands of more years of experience in taking down humans. Oh, by the way, your own indwelling sin that still runs around like a rebel force in your heart. And the sinful world culture that's begging you to follow it every day. I don't say that to depress us. I do say that to sober us up. Uh, life is not a game, it's a battle, and we need to go into the battle every day, ready to fight. Okay. Um, the essence of the covenant of works. Do this, and you will live. Okay. The essence of the heart of it is God saying, I will satisfy you. I will sustain you. I will protect you. I will be your good father. I'll take care of you. But you must be my people. You must serve me. I will take care of you. I will satisfy you. I mean, everybody's going to know this. We don't really, outside of the church, so to speak, we never use the word covenant, except maybe one place in modern day life. What would be the one place in modern day life where you might hear the word covenant outside of a seminary class at a reformed seminary? Yeah. Marriage. And that, that is the best picture. Okay. Uh, there, there are commitments. There are huge implications. Okay, and that is a great picture. If you want to, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 does ret- refer to the covenant with Adam. The language of covenant is never used in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, you know, why is the language of covenant never used there? We're not 100% sure, but it may be this, because that covenant was different. And maybe the Bible was wanting to reserve the word covenant for the gracious covenants that were to come later. Don't know for sure if that's a guess. Here's Westminster Confession, chapter 7, part 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Hear that. I mean, we're not going to necessarily get much into that today. We might do it later. But the the federal headship, if Adam would have obeyed, it would not just have blessed him, it would have blessed all his posterity. Would it not? Right. And when Adam fell, it didn't just ruin him, it ruined all his posterity. This is why we're born dead in our sins before we even got a choice. Adam got a choice for us. <clears throat> now, one of my sons, when we used to talk about this, he really hated this. And he's like, Dad, if I had been the first guy in the garden, I'd have never eaten that apple. And I was like, buddy, I've been living with you uh, for enough years to know, yes, you would have. Okay, because you're super rebellious. Uh, who of us thinks we would have done better than Adam? Okay. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, verse 1. I mean, no, notice how some people would say the whole covenant theology is, is the substructure, is the foundation of the whole Westminster Confession of Faith. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. I mean, isn't that what you want from your children? 
I mean, you know, it's not realistic, but that's what you want. Isn't that the kind of faithfulness you want from a spouse? You know, it's not reality, but that's what you want. And when you're the most in love with your spouse, isn't that the kind of faithfulness you want to give? I don't want to give half-hearted, begrudging, bare minimum. I want to give perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Promise life upon the fulfilling and threaten death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So Adam had the power to keep it. Okay, That's been repeated already twice in the confession we've looked at this morning. Now, have any of you read The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson? Okay, oh, great. So if you're like, man, that whole Marrow book sounds really exciting but too intimidating, you're probably right. So get The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, read it and read it and mark it up well and read it over and over again. I mean, it's one to go back to over and over again. He brings so much insight into the things that we're talking about and a lot of good practical implications. So, point four. Adam, and thus all humanity, or in the words of the confession, his posterity, has broken it, broken the covenant of works or law. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's just flip over to Romans chapter 3 because we're already there. Romans chapter 3. And let's start in verse 9. This is the classic passage on the sinfulness of human beings. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So the religious and the unreligious, right? Those that grew up with special revelation and those that didn't grow up with special revelation. They're all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, let's just let this sink in for a second. We, we've said this before. There are plenty of non-Christians that do good works at the human level, air quotes, right? They help old ladies across the street. But it's not a good work before God because it's not for his glory. It's for their own glory or some other civic interest or something, but not for the honor of God like it ought to be. In the middle of this passage, and it talks about their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. I think that's pretty easy for us to say, absolutely, every person lies, even the best person. We know they've told some, you know, I'm sure Billy Graham told a white lie at some point in his life, right? We've all, we've all told a lie. But then, what is it essentially saying in verse 15? Their feet are swift to shed blood. I mean, somebody put that in layman's terms. What, what is the Apostle Paul quoting Old Testament essentially saying about all humanity? Murder. We're all murderers at heart. Now, this gets a little bit harder, right? Because it's like, man, my kids are so nice and sweet, and i got these neighbors, and they're Hindu, and they won't even kill a fly. They seem so gentle, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was a history major at Samford, and I, I basically I, I made it into a military history class because I just took every class that had anything to do with uh, war because that's what I was most interested in. It was the easiest to get through. Um, and here's the thing, especially when you start studying World War II, right? Because, I mean, Hitler and the Nazis, they're still kind of the classic bad guy, the most evil people, right? Even the people are like, I don't believe in hell. What about Hitler? Okay, yeah, I believe in hell. Uh, but you really start studying, and it's like it wasn't just the Nazis and the Germans that were committing genocide against the Jews. There were other countries. You start seeing, oh, the Romanians got involved, the Hungarians got involved. 
The Russians did a lot of bad stuff. And even there were a lot of times like they'd invade Poland and some of the Polish people would turn on their Jewish neighbors. And then you start, you're like, well, Hitler, the six million Jews, that's kind of famous. But you start studying what Stalin did and some of his purges. And it's maybe in the tens and twenties of millions. We don't even have great accounting. And then you go to Mao Zedong and uh, you know China and the revolution there, and some of the estimates get into 80 to 100 million. And you just keep studying the history. And guys, this is just the last century. This is not going back to all the other stuff. Cambodia, Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, it was only maybe 3.5 million, but it was like almost half the population of the country. And you say, well, it's just all those Europeans and Asians. They're just bad people, you know, but the rest of us, you study our own history enough, okay? And there's a lot of bad stuff that good old Americans, right, did to Native Americans, did to African slaves. They're, and you start to realize, if God doesn't do a miracle in my heart, I'm a murderer. That's what this means. I, I am Hitler, <laughs> left to my own devices, at least in seed potential. And it ought to be incredibly sobering to us. We're all murderers. Uh, that to me, this is the easiest doctrine to prove, right? I've said, shared this. I never tried to teach my kids how to lie, but they all figured it out real quick. It's, sin is now dominating. This is federal headship. Adam was our federal head. He was our representative. When he fell, we all fell in him. Okay. If Joe Biden, okay, Jason, you get it on this illustration, but it applies for the rest of it. Pretend you're American, for better or worse, for this illustration. Uh, if Joe Biden, during the middle of this class, declares war on China, I'm so mad about the spy balloon, I'm declaring war. You may say, I love the Chinese people. I don't want to be at war with China. doesn't matter. You're at war with China. I mean, I get, technically, Congress would have to approve you know, the declaration of war, but you get the point. Our representatives, if they declare war, we're at war. And in some sense, Adam declared war against God, and we're all born into this world in Adam's army against God. And, and guys... I hope for all of us, we sense in a fresh way the radical mercy of God that says, I'm going to go save my enemies. I'm going to go have mercy and convert those who have declared rebellion. Point five. We are now saved by the covenant of grace apart from the works of the law. Okay. Um, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. To speak very simply about covenants, biblically, there's really only two. There's the covenant of works, and there's the covenant of grace. Another way to say it is, spiritually speaking, there's only two families in the history of the universe. There's, you're in Adam, or you're in Christ. There's no other option. There's no neutral option. There's no third option. There's no in-between way. The covenant of grace starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, see, that, that's interesting. He says, Satan, you tried to get all of humanity to be at war with me, but I'm not going to let it be that way. I'm going to redeem some of humanity, and they're going to be at war with you. I'm not giving them all over to you. That's part of the curse on Satan. Between the offspring, your offspring, Satan's offspring, and Eve's offspring, right? there's going to be war. And one day there's going to be this one seed, this one offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is the first prediction of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ coming, the covenant of grace. There it is announced. Verses 20 and 21, the man called his wife's name Eve. So, is Adam going to be in heaven? Yes, he is. He heard the promise that day. 
he had, at this point they have no kids, but he hears and he believes with faith, we're going to stay alive and we're going to have babies. So I'm going to nickname you Mama, even though we don't have any babies yet. That was his step of faith. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife's garment of skin and clothed them. Okay. As far as we know, okay, biblically speaking, this was the first physical death. Some little innocent animal that committed no sin got killed that day so that God could take its skin and cover the naked shame of Adam and Eve. And this is the beginning of the covenant of grace. And it's a blood covenant. Um, now, it's announced and expanded in more details. Let's flip over to uh, Genesis chapter 12. We're not going to look at all the different iterations of the covenant. But Genesis chapter 12 now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, you think, Paul, how is that going to happen? The Messiah is going to come from Abraham's loins way down the way, and it's literally going to bless every tongue, tribe, and nation. Okay. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Uh, let's see here. Skip down to verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So at this point, he has no offspring. But there's a promise. You're going to have offspring. And you're going to get the land. But sometimes more importantly, you're going to have babies. Skip to chapter 15. Many years later, and Abram was 75 when that promise came that we just read. So not getting any younger. After these things, the word of the Lord, Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Yeah, just again, how often do you think of the heart of Father God like that? I'm your protector, but I'm also your rewarder. I love you. I, he's a good daddy who delights in giving great gifts to his kids. He likes to reward us, and it will be very great. None of us are going to get to heaven and be disappointed. It's not going to be a bad Christmas morning. It's going to all have been worth the wait. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So I got this servant who's going to get all my stuff because I ain't got no babies. And, you and guys, this is a good prayer. Again, this is not what we're talking about, but pray honestly. Pray boldly. If you're frustrated with the Lord, tell him. He already knows it anyway. Put it out in front of him. Because then maybe he'll speak, maybe not audibly, but in the quiet place of your heart, he'll bring scripture to mind to calm you. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring breed. Verse 6, And he believed the Lord and he counted it him to righteousness. Okay. Super important verse, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Underline it in your Bibles uh, if you want to. Here's the point, guys. If you, were in, if you were in my class last semester, you're not allowed to answer this question. Okay, so... How were people saved, forgiven, made right with God in the Old Testament? Class participation part for just a moment, unless you were in class last semester. Somebody take a guess just for fun. Okay. 
believing in the promise of divine design. Okay, very good. Macaulay, gold star. Believing in the promise of the coming Messiah. Okay. In some sense, they were saved the exact same way we are. The difference is we look back to a risen Savior that we can see by grace very clearly. They looked forward to a coming Messiah that they couldn't really even understand. But they trusted the Word of God and they were saved by faith alone, grace alone, not by works. And this is the classic Old Testament passage that shows that happening. Okay. Now, we're going to get to see an Old Testament covenant ceremony. In the Old Testament, what would happen sometimes is you might have some large city-state and they would find some smaller city-state and decide, I want to make you a vassal. Basically, you're going to serve me, right? You're going to pay me a tenth, maybe, of all your gold and crops and whatever. We're going to take it. But what am I going to do for you? If you're ever attacked by a bigger city, you call and I come protect you. And the way they would do this often is they would make a covenant ceremony. Okay? They didn't have signed contracts as much back then. Okay? It wasn't just a shake on it type deal. But what they would often do is they would get animals. They would cut the animals in half. They would lay them down. And then usually, every once in a while, both would walk through, the higher king and maybe the lesser mayor. But usually what would happen is the lesser mayor of the little village, so to speak, would walk through the animals and kind of repeat the terms of the covenant. And the idea was this. If I break my faithfulness, and maybe start giving money to a different, you know, mighty city-state, I'll be chopped in half. My blood will be shed. So look at what's going to happen. Chapter 15, verse 9. Well, start in verse 8. But he said, O Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's like, I want some evidence. I want some proof. How do I know? I'm struggling out here. I'm an old man. I got no babies. And you're telling me, how, how can I really be sure? God says, okay. Verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Okay, now just notice, God said, Go get these animals. God didn't say cut them, but Abram cut them because he knew what he was supposed to do. He knew it was coming. He knew the way this worked because this was the culture of the day. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now just pause for a second. When you think about smoke and fire, okay, in the Old Testament, what do you tend to think of? The presence of God. This is a manifestation of the presence of God. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay. And here's the interesting thing. God walked through. He never required Abram to. Because what he was saying is, I'm going to fulfill both sides of the covenant. I know you're not going to be faithful. I'm going to fulfill both sides of the covenant. How did he do that? In the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when the Lord Jesus Christ was hung on the cross and shedding his blood for our sins, in some sense when his soul was being ripped apart for us, you remember how darkness came on the land? Just like the darkness came here. And God's presence was obvious in judgment, but it was for our salvation. Everybody flip to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. 
And while you turn there, I'm going to read Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 7, Part 3. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, right, the covenant works because you had to be perfect for that, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. You hear that last phrase? That's so key. Because somebody said, yeah, God did the whole thing, so I just I can do whatever I want. Right? God's doing both parts. I can't be perfect. What's the point? No, no, no. Part of what God does is he gives me the Holy Spirit to start walking in line with the implications of the covenant. It won't be perfect. It won't be exact. It won't be entire until I'm in glory. But it can be a real, genuine, sincere start. Make sense to me? Again, when you have kids, and when do kids start walking? Macaulay, like one, is that right? Or yeah. Okay. Your little one-year-old starts walking, and they look like a drunken sailor, right? They take two steps and they fall down. What, do you, what, do you, what does a good parent say? You moron. No stupid kid of mine is going to walk like that. I, no, there, there's a graciousness. There's a kind. There's a celebration. You took two steps and you didn't hit your head and get a concussion. That's amazing. There's joy over sincere effort on the child. And guys, when we as Christians are sincerely trying to obey, even though we often stumble and fall, the heart of Father God rejoices. Again, remember, he doesn't relate to us as a judge anymore. Court is adjourned for us. He relates to us like a daddy now. Now, I think our, remember, but we still have indwelling sin. And I don't know about you, but I know my own heart. Sometimes what my indwelling sin wants to say is, well, God knows how much I stumble and struggle, so I can really kind of play around with some sin over here and just call it a struggle and everything's cool. Right? I don't say that out loud, but that's the kind of inner dialogue going on in the back of my heart. Can't be that. Dangerous. Right? If you catch your child doing that with you, what are you going to do? There's going to be discipline. Right? Short-term pain to bring long-term gain. So take the covenant serious. Take the implications of the covenant serious. But remember, it's covenant grace. All right? So there's only two ways to relate to God. You relate to Him based on the covenant of law and works, which means you're trying to earn your salvation. Through perfection, you can't do it. Or you relate to him through the blood of Christ, the covenant of grace. So, all the Hindus, all the Muslims, all the people in weird sects of so-called Christianity that aren't really Christianity like Mormonism, all the so-called atheists, all the agnostics, they are relating to God under the covenant of works, whether they know they are or don't know they are whether they say they are or don't say they are. Make sense? Okay. Um, hey, Owen. Yes. Could you, like, I feel like all the different sects of Christianity, that makes sense, like, mm -hmm. whether they know or not, but, like, how does an atheist apply to, like, the works covenant? Yeah, well, because uh, what we read in Romans chapter 1, the question for everybody on Zoom was, how does the covenant of works apply to atheists? Yeah. Because they were made by God. And let me just give you a quick summary of Romans chapter 1. And this, Go do this study on your own. And it's really just the second half of Romans chapter 1. But here's the, here's the second half of Romans chapter 1. Everybody knows there is a God. Everybody knows that they're a sinner. 
And everybody knows that well-deserved wrath is coming. That's what Romans 1 says. Somebody wrote a book once. I never read the book, but I love the title. God doesn't believe in atheists. That's what the the verse we just read, Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20. There's enough in nature that makes it obvious that there's a creator. They can try to suppress that truth. They can try to press it down. Say, no, no, I don't believe in it. It's like, yes, they do. They know there's a creator. And that's why the battle goes on in their mind that keeps saying, why do I feel guilty? Why do I feel the need to prove myself? Because there is a cosmic courtroom that you've got a date set with, even though you're trying so hard to deny it. Deep down, you know. Everybody is under the covenant of works, whether they want to be or not. Listen, just like Adam. Remember, biblically, a covenant is not a negotiated out agreement. There's no prenup, right? Right? It's an arranged marriage. It's the king coming and saying, I made you, you will do this. And that's not right for a human king to do because he didn't make us. We don't owe ultimate allegiance to a human king, but to a divine king who said, no, no, I literally created you. I mean, again, imagine if Eleanor came to you and said, why do I have to obey you, daddy? I mean, there's just some sense because I'm your dad. You know, well, I didn't want you to be my dad. Doesn't matter. These may or may not be real conversations based off uh, Stubbs family children at some point, you know. It's like, I am your dad, you know. Whether you like it or not, this is the way it is. I mean, it's just, it's written into nature. This is the way the world works. Okay. I love being an American. I love visiting Australia. And here's my point. A lot of things about the self-governing and all that, it works it works for local government, humans interacting with each other, right? I'm a fan of all that stuff. It doesn't translate well into divine concepts. The world is a monarchy. It's not a democracy. It's an absolute monarchy. Now, he's a benevolent dictator, but he is a dictator nonetheless. Good question. Point six, the Mosaic covenant and law was added because of Jewish presumption. Now, this is super important, okay? Um, Everybody flip over to Matthew chapter 3. Well, we're in Galatians, so flip over to Philippians for a second. Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at some of Paul's testimony. Remember Paul, the self-righteous, legalistic Jew. He's given us some of his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. And let's start in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then look at what he's going to list out in in verse 5. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. You see what he's doing? He's saying, part of the reason I had so much confidence that I was right with God before I was a Christian, because I was a Jew, man. And I I was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the best tribes. And I was a Pharisee. I was de- the Jews started to think there's just something inherently good about us, and that's why God started the covenant with Father Abram. Okay, which is not true. I mean, imagine that everybody in this Zoom class, in this classroom, you are all convicted, confessed serial murderers, and you're all on death row, and you're about to be 
taken to the execution chamber. But I come in, and I'm the governor of the state, and I say, I'm pardoning you all. And you're all sitting in shackles. I say, I'm pardoning you all. You're all about to be let go free. I only have two sets of keys to get you out of the shackles, though. So I'm going to let Jacob out first just because he's closest to me. And he has a very good biblical name that's going to work great with this illustration. So I say, Jacob, I'm letting you out first. I'm going to give you the second set of keys. And now I'd like you to walk around this prison cell with me and help me release everybody else. Imagine what it would be like if I unlocked Jacob's shackles, gave him a set of keys to help me release others, and he stood up like, yeah, look at all you losers. You guys are about to go to the gas chamber and die. I'm out of here, baby. I'm free, right? Because my name's Jacob. I had such a great biblical name. Governor chose me. That would be evil. And there'd be a part of me as the governor that'd want to slap him upside the back of the head, right? Maybe put him back in shackles. The point is, how should Jacob respond? Shock, awe, just, I'm just excited I'm not going to get executed tomorrow. Oh, oh, and you want me to help others? Great, I'd be more than happy to. No boasting, no pride. But the fact that God chose to start with the Jewish nation, in large part, it went to their head. They became arrogant. And so, metaphorically speaking, part of the way that God slapped them upside the back of the head to get their attention was the whole Mosaic Covenant. It brought in the law in a much more forceful way. Okay, um, Flip back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Okay, Romans chapter 2. Look at verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Right? It does no good if you're just, oh, I was born a Jew. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Doesn't matter if you have the physical sign of the covenant. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is the matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Okay, so he's saying, just because you were born a Jew and you got the physical sign of the covenant, that didn't get you to heaven. What gets you to heaven is inner conversion, right? That you're a spiritual Jew, that you've had circumcision of the heart. Chapter 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law okay, comes the knowledge of sin. One of the main things the moral law of God does, but also the entire Mosaic law, which was kind of like this re-emphasis of the moral law, is to humble us, is to shatter our pride, is to show us our sin. I've used this illustration uh, before. Uh, John Bunyan has this great illustration in Pilgrim's Progress at the interpreter's house. There's a room. It's full of dust. The room is the human heart. The dust represents sin. A broom comes in that represents the law. If you try to sweep sin out of the human heart with just the law, it actually stirs it up and makes it worse. But then somebody comes in with a little jug of water that represents grace. If you sprinkle some water onto the sin, it settles the dust, and then you can use the law to move the dust out of the heart. Okay. Um, here's Thomas Boston, okay, great Puritan. The covenant of works is added to the covenant of grace as subservient unto it to turn their eyes towards the promise or the covenant of grace. So in some sense, the Mosaic law came in and it felt heavy, but it was a way for God to say, remember the promise, guys? If you try to do this thing by works alone, you're going to be damned. So remember, you don't have to do it by works alone because I made a promise in Genesis 3.15 to Adam. I made a promise to Abram in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Look to that. Do you remember two times with Jesus, Okay, the most famous with the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Just keep the commandments. 
I mean, has any of us ever shared the gospel that way? But Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew the pride in this man's heart. And he's like, oh, you want to be saved? Well, just covenant works. Keep the law, you'll be fine. Right? And we think, well, you can't do it. Right. But see what the point I'm getting? The Jews thought they could do it, a lot of them. And so he said, I'm already doing that. I'm keeping all of the law. I've kept it perfectly since my birth. Jesus said, okay, just, just one little thing you like. Just sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Right? And what Jesus was exposing is, no, you haven't kept the first commandment because you're not honoring God as number one. You're honoring your money. You haven't kept the tenth commandment because you do covet. You want stuff too much. And the guy walks away sad. There, there's a right way to use the law of God to humble people. Okay, and God and Jesus, the master of it. Here's the marrow again. The Lord gave them this law so that they may see how far short they fall in obeying it. And just for modern day Christians, that, that's even good for us. You read the Bible, you come across moral commands. There's something good just to be humbled by it. To be laid low in the dust. Now, let's not to give up in despair, right? I mean, a Christian, you read the Bible, you, you come across some law, you know, thou shalt not lust. And, 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 and there's conviction, there's repentance, there's remorse, but then there also to be, Lord, give me your Holy Spirit to be stronger, to be wiser, to be more disciplined, to be by your grace more conformed to the image of Christ. That ought to be our ongoing heart. Not despair, but not presumption. Okay. A holy humility and a holy longing for more. Okay, here's the marrow again. God didn't renew the covenant of works with them. There was no need to. Their fall in Adam was almost forgotten. In that long course of time between Adam and Moses, men had forgotten what sin was. They found no need for pleading the promise made to Abraham so that now the Lord saw it needful that they should be, there should be a new addition and publication of the covenant of works. Make sense? Okay. Point seven. The Mosaic covenant had three types of law. The moral, the civil, the ceremonial. This is where the Westminster Confession of Faith is uh, supremely helpful. Okay. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, Part 2, this law after his fall continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty toward God and the other sin, excuse me, and the other our duty to man. Okay, um, So my best understanding is the civil law in some sense was God making very specific application of the second tablet of the moral law of God for very specific people at a very specific time. This is how you love your neighbor. You don't steal his donkey. And if you do, you give it back and you, you know, pay fivefold, you know, interest or whatever it was. And then the ceremonial law was a very specific application for a very specific people at a very specific time of the first tablet, how you relate to God. You slaughter the bulls, you slaughter the goats. Okay. Um, now listen, even places in the Old Testament, it was clear that the moral law was much more important than the ceremonial law. Okay? Uh, the ceremonial law was, was bound to fade away. But think about uh, a very famous psalm, Psalm 51. David, let me just read this for us. Okay, I think we'll all know this. At the end of it, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And the verse before that, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What's he saying? He's saying, God, in the depths of my heart, I know you really don't care about the sacrifices. You care about my heart being humble and holy. But then after he says that, the next verse, verse 18, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So God, yes, we're going to keep the ceremonial law. I want to do that. But I know if I just keep the ceremonial law and I'm not keeping the moral law, it doesn't matter. I want to keep the moral law so I can keep the ceremonial law in the right way. But just how can you know that there was something unique about the moral law, even in the Mosaic law? Because people say, no, it's all mixed in. The Ten Commandments, the summary of the moral law, and think about this. Only they were written by God's hand, literally. Okay? Only they were written in stone. There's permanence. And only the Ten Commandments were put into the Ark of the Covenant. So even then, there was something unique about the moral law that stood out from the ceremonial and the civil. Okay. Um, flip to Galatians again. Galatians chapter 3. We might have to make this a two-part lesson. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, and let's start in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? The Mosaic law? Certainly not. For a law had been given, they could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So he's saying, listen, God never intended for people to get saved through the Mosaic law. Okay? But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise might be by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So part of what the Mosaic law locked down the Jewish nation to make it painfully obvious to them, you can never be saved by your good works because there's all these 600 commands and you keep breaking them to make them long for the coming Messiah or the way that uh, Thomas Boston said it or in the marrow to make them plead the promise of Abraham. Okay? It's pushing them back to that. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The Mosaic law was given to the nation of Israel, which was the church in the Old Testament, but they were like infants and they needed a lot of rules. Once Christ has come, it's like the church is now more in its maturity. And it doesn't need all of the ceremonial and the civic law. Okay. Um, the civil and the ceremonial law, they were pointing towards Christ, but they were always destined to fall away. They were never destined to be forever. Let me just give you two quick examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. And if you really want to study this in depth, just read the whole book of Hebrews. Okay, we might do some of that later, but uh, just for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Okay, the moral law matters. The ceremonial law does not matter at all for us now. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll just look at one verse here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, right? We don't need the civil law anymore because the Jews don't have the same established city they had under the theocracy of God in the Old Testament. It's different now, so they don't apply. But listen to this, very wise from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, verse 4. To them also, as a body politic, 
he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other, now further than general equity thereof may require. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, you know, when the United States was building its government, a lot of what they did was they looked at the Bible to build a lot of their laws off of. Not to say, well, we have to do it exactly the way the Bible did, but it's like, well, there, there was this one time in history where the creator of the universe gave us a set of civil laws. So it would be wise for us to look at those civil laws to at least draw principles from that we can build our laws off of today. But they don't have to be exactly the same. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, all right. Let's wrap it up like this. Uh, point eight, okay? Galatians chapter four. Point eight is Christ fulfilled the entire law for us, including all three parts, right? I love this. Galatians chapter four, look at verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Remember, Jesus was born under the covenant of works, just like every other human being ever born. And Jesus was specifically born as a Jew under all the Mosaic law, the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. But why was he born like that? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus fulfilled every jot and tittle of all the legalistic requirements so that now we don't relate to God as a judge but as a daddy and we're adopted in and it's done and it's signed and sealed in the blood of Christ. So point nine and we're done. In Christ and the covenant of grace we are freed from the covenant of works. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone not by works. We don't have to keep any part of the law okay the civil the ceremony or the moral to gain salvation. But to please and honor our Father, we don't obey the civil law. doesn't apply to us anymore. We don't obey the ceremonial law. doesn't apply to us. We do obey the moral law as a way to fulfill the implications of the covenant because we love our great Father and Savior. So let's just, last verse, Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And, and Paul oftentimes just uses law as shorthand for the covenant works. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is teaching you to cry out to your Father, Abba, Father, like Jesus did. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin and motivating you to obedience, okay, out of a love for God, you're not under the covenant works anymore. You're under the covenant of grace. Lord Jesus, you're far too good to us. Help us understand more the depths of your majesty. Make us into the men and women you want us to be in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.